Morning, church family. This morning, we begin our 24th week going through the book of Ephesians. Our brother Ty started us out, helping us to understand how we are united in Christ. As we laid the foundation for this precious book, we would come to understand that because of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf, we are made one. We are united and live out that reality because of the lavish grace and mercy that he's poured out on us. As we move into today's text, we'll be revisiting again how it is that God's incredible plan for making a right vertical relationship between us and him plays itself out in the horizontal relationships that we have. It's important as we we draw near to the text this morning that we understand that all of this declares the lordship of Jesus Christ. So before we even get into rereading this text and asking the Lord to direct us, I want to make a correction to today's service title. The sermon title says in your bulletins, Slaves to Christ. But I'd like to change that to Christ, our Lord. Yes, we'll, we'll understand that, that we are in fact bondservants, slaves of Jesus Christ, but that's only because he mercifully has adopted us as his sons and daughters. He is our master, He is our Lord, and that's why we're here together. That hope is the same hope that ministers to us when we ask for healing for a loved one, and he grants ultimate healing. So let's ask the Lord to to quiet our hearts and minds as we put ourselves under his gracious lordship this morning. Father in heaven, We gather together with thoughts and and hearts that that are often filled with noises that need to be put under your lordship, Lord Jesus. And so we ask this morning that you would prepare us to be instructed by your word, that you would prepare the eyes of our heart to be enlightened yet again, and that our focus would be on the cross. The cross that earned for us the opportunity to be called not just your servants, but your friends, your sons, your daughters, your brothers, your sisters. Lord God, if there is anything in in this text, Lord God, that is difficult for us to understand, might through the power of your Holy Spirit be made clear to us. May it do its transforming work in our lives in a way that only you can do through your word. It's in the name of our Lord Jesus we pray. Amen. To refresh us on where we've been at in our journey together, I'm going to invite you to stand as we reread. We're going to look at kind of the unit of text. It's a a little bit long, so if you're able, please stand. I'm going to begin the reading of this section at verse 15 of chapter 5. We'll read through verse 9 of chapter 6. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, And gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church." because we are members of his body. Therefore, 
A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Over the course of the last few weeks, in this section on on submission, we've come to understand that everything is part of God's design. Everything has been placed under his headship, Christ under God, the church under Christ, the church leadership under Christ as overseers, husbands faithfully leading their wives, children obediently submitting to their husbands, And today, we get the tough one, slaves and masters. It's important to remember that that Paul lays out throughout his theology, throughout his 13 letters, the idea that there should be submission in society and in the church and in the home. And as we look at this text, we'll see this as an extension of what would be understood as part of the home in Roman society. It's also applied in great measure to the workplace, Many preachers that address this text will will look at it as an analogy to help understand how we ought to conduct ourselves as followers of Christ in the workplace. We'll see that that might be a a bit of an oversimplification, but first let's unpack the context just a little bit here. Verse 5 of Ephesians 6 says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Now, Paul's list of of the type of submission that we should be showing isn't meant to be an exhaustive list. He doesn't give an explanation of every single kind of human relationship, but he gives some exemplary ones, and he calls them out, and they all have a counterpart. Husband, wife, kids, mom, and dad, right? They all have a counterpart. Well, this one is no exception. He gives two counterparts. The first one is that of a a bondservant. For those of you who have been exposed to, to Scripture for a number of years, you'll know that the word there is doulos, It's a word that really effectively means slave. Now we always pick on Bible translations, and today might not need to be an exception, right? The King James translation only translates the word slave correctly one time. Other contemporary translations sort of do the same thing to soften the connotations of the word slave. It's a difficult word for us to hear. It's a difficult topic to be addressed. But we need to understand what it would have meant when Paul used that word in introducing himself. Several of Paul's letters, he actually introduced himself. It says, Paul, a a servant of Christ. Rightly translated, it says, Paul, a slave of Christ. As we get into this letter that Paul writes from prison in Rome to the church at Ephesus, it's important to understand that everybody in the congregation understood what this meant. There were some who owned slaves there were some who were slaves. Interestingly, I I learned this week that slaves could actually own other slaves. You could get to a a certain social status where a slave could have a slave. So this is like an all-encompassing aspect of society. One historian says that there were as many as 60 million slaves throughout the Roman Empire during the life of Paul, a fifth of the population. So you come into a church like the one that was meeting at Ephesus, or, or house churches in other parts of the Roman Empire, and slavery was a common theme. 
Now, slavery is found throughout scripture, but to be clear, it is not something that God ordained. When God established things prior to the fall, God was giving dominion to man over his creation. Adam, feel free to name all the animals. Adam, feel free to to farm the earth, but nowhere does he ever give an instruction to have dominion over another human being. The idea of ownership of a person as property is clearly an objection to God's design as a creator of image bearers. Nonetheless, after the fall, it became a a, a normal human institution. As I skim-read the book of Genesis, the first person I could find named as a slave was Hagar, the one who would be the, the servant, the slave, as it says, of Abraham, bringing about the birth of, of Ishmael. The Genesis narrative, of course, is full of other examples of slaves, one of whom we'll, of course, talk about this morning. But to be clear, while God did not ordain slavery, his pattern for submission for right relationships in these horizontal relationships after the fall means that he even speaks to how the relationship should be between a slave and a master. We look at the counterpart to the word bondservants there, and and if we look at verse 5 of Ephesians 6 again, it says, bondservants, obey your earthly masters. The counterpart is kairos, the Greek word that, that really means a Lord, an owner, the one who has authority and ownership of a slave. Those people, too, would have comprised some in the church. So what's important to to understand as we move into this is that this is not the objectionable thing that, that we often put slavery through our filter as understanding. For the Ephesian church, this was life. And so... Paul, in presenting the gospel, leaves no area of life untouched. Just like he's talked about marriages and he's talked about parents, now he's going to talk about this relationship between slaves and masters. The important thing about this message is that the gospel actually takes time to address this segment of population. It's actually quite incredible how God gave Paul the foresight to call out people who otherwise wouldn't have been addressed in a letter. If we think about it, to address the, the women in a letter was somewhat called countercultural. But Paul said, for those who are in Christ, there's a message for the husband and the wife. Likewise, children, we talked about the idea of a father having absolute authority over his children. It would have been unusual for Paul's letter to address the children of the congregation. And today's message is, is no less Incredible in that Paul addresses both the owners and their slaves. The gospel is for all who would come to Christ. As we unpack the statement, bond servants obey in, in everything those who are your earthly masters. The word that modifies master is really important. The word is an earthly master. Now, why would he describe it that way, right? You wouldn't say, hey, uh, kids, let's take the, the fast car this morning unless you also had a slow car, right? You're, you're always going to call out that modifier because there's something else that he's comparing to. So he says, obey your earthly masters. And that's because of the, the compelling truth that he is reiterating yet again is that we have a heavenly master. We have Christ, not only as our, our soter, as our savior, but also as our kairios, our owner. And so it's in that truth that, that Paul begins to unpack how this ought to inform our conduct as we live out our horizontal relationships. Paul says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Now, a couple of different times this morning, we'll take a look at Colossians chapter 3. This is a parallel passage. We've seen it again and again, and we recognize that Paul wrote this letter at a similar time, also sent with Tychicus, and and he says some of the same things, but with different phrases, and we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. So if you flip over to Colossians 3, verse 22, the parallel verse there, Paul writes, Bondservants, obey in everything 
those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. The word there that he uses is in everything. All the instructions that are given to slaves by their masters should be obeyed. And how should they be obeyed? It says with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. Now, to be clear, this fear and trembling is something that is to describe our attitude towards Christ, whom we are actually serving and not our earthly master. We're not to be driven by a fear or a trembling of our earthly master, but it says with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. It's Christ, ultimately, that drives our conduct because it is him that we fear. He is always watching us. He is always discerning, as we read in Jeremiah chapter 17, the thoughts of our wicked minds and the intentions of our wicked hearts. But Paul makes it clear that we are to obey the instructions of our master just as if those instructions had come from Christ himself. Obey is what he says. Now, there's a flip side to the word obey. What's the opposite of obey? To disobey, right? Now, Paul uses a different word when he's writing to one of the elders that he has put in place. You might recall from around about this time last year, we were looking at the book of Titus. And we learned that Titus was dropped off in the island of Crete, a little island. And the people of Crete were characterized in, in kind of a, a harsh way, right? Paul says that, hey, even the Cretans themselves say that they are liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. And the word of God calls them insubordinate. They wouldn't obey anyone, not their earthly masters, not the church leaders. And for that reason, Paul's like, Titus, put some leadership in place here and, and tell these people that they need to be reminded that part of the call of the gospel is to obey the master as though they are obeying Christ. Titus 3.1 says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready for every good work. Titus 1.16 helps us understand this as well. Paul writes to Titus, he says, these folks in Cretan society, those not of the church per se, but, but those who are on the periphery, he says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. That, that stings just a bit, right? Like, this is a call of what someone who has been touched by the gospel ought to live out. Someone who has come to know Christ as their Savior and as their Lord ought to conduct themselves in a way that can be described not as insubordinate, not as disobedient, not as detestable, but as one who obeys just as though they're obeying Christ Jesus. Now, the, the word fear and trembling, again, we come back to that because this is the attitude with which the service is supposed to be rendered, right? It's obedience as unto the Lord, and it's with a, a fear and trembling because of the reverence that we have, not for the master, not for our employer, not for our boss, not for those over authority over us, but as if for Christ himself. If you turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we find that not only did Paul drop Titus off on the island of Crete, but he was also sent to the church at Corinth. And during the time that Titus was in Corinth, he observed the way the Corinthian church responded in obedience. At verse 13 of chapter 7, Paul says, Therefore we were comforted, and besides our own comforted, Besides our own comfort, we rejoice still all the more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit was refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have great confidence in you. You see how Paul describes the reception of Titus by the Corinthian church? 
He says, you receive Titus with fear and trembling. Now, what we know about the pastoral letter to Titus, he doesn't sound like a particularly scary guy. He sounds like a guy who was doing God's will and he was establishing leadership in the church and he was teaching faithfully and he was exhorting them. But the church in Corinth received him as though they were receiving an emissary of the Lord Jesus Christ. And with that fear and that reverence, they obeyed him. And it brought forth fruit in the Corinthian church. So I just want you to understand that as we look at that fear and trembling thing, it's not about being afraid of your boss, okay? It's about a reverence, a reverent awe of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that being the, the motivation for how we obey. Looking a bit at the idea of, of the fear of the Lord, we need to understand that this is also contrasted with the fear of man. Let's move on to, to verse 6 of Ephesians chapter 6. Paul says, Obey with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. An NASB commercial for this week is that the, the other two translations that I have up here, both NIV and NASB, do take the liberty of using the word slave here. Now, they use the word slave because it's referring to Christ as our master. The translators are like, well, being a slave to somebody else, not okay. Being a slave to Christ, okay. So you'll notice that subtlety. But what I want to call out as you look at these different translations is understanding what this motivation for obedience really looks like. First, obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. When we come to understand what we've seen about submission these last few weeks, we've learned that it's not just what we do, it's what motivates our heart to do it. Right? We learned that children obeying your parents is different than children honoring your parents. Doing what is asked of us with a terrible attitude does not honor Christ. Doing what is asked of us not by way of eye service is pleasing to Christ. So I want to I point out two easy pitfalls that we can fall into when it comes to doing the right thing for the wrong reason. The first thing is that we can do the right thing because somebody is watching us, right? The NIV says it really, white, really well there. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ. Anybody ever notice what happens when the boss is at vac on vacation? People roll in a little later, Leave a little bit earlier. Maybe parents, you've uh, assigned a, a task to one of your children, and it's done really well when you're watching them, but you step in the other room and you come back, and what happened? I told you to slice them this way, right? And now it looks like this. As fallen creatures, we behave in one way when eyes are on us, and another way when no one's looking. But the truth of what Paul tells us in Scripture here is that God is always cognizant of what we're doing. He is always with his eyes on us. So one pitfall is that we can perform one way when somebody's looking and one way when they're not. The second pitfall is knowing that we're being motivated by a fear of man and not by a fear of God. Being motivated because people are looking. The NASB says, not by way of eye service as man-pleasers. Let's unpack that for a minute. Man-pleaser, right? The call of a follower of Jesus Christ is to do everything that is acceptable to Christ as our Lord and Master. But oftentimes, in our, in our fallenness and our sinfulness, we become more concerned with what others think than what Christ thinks. It's a great book. Some of you, I know, for a fact, own it. I always get the title wrong. When God is big and people are small. I always get it backwards. Don't get it backwards. Don't get it backwards. When God is big and people are small, we can be falsely motivated to do obedience, to do something, because we're concerned with what other people think about us. You might think, that's not me. Well, I'm going to give you a couple of quick checklists here, okay? I'm going to borrow from that book, and I'm going to say that there's a way for us to examine our hearts and look at our motivations, 
Maybe some of these are areas that we can hand over to the Lord that he would work on our hearts. Here's one sign of being a people pleaser. It says, are you overcommitted? Do you find that it's hard to say no even when wisdom indicates that you should? You are a people pleaser, which is another euphemism for the fear of man. Or how about this for the social media users out there? Is self-esteem self a critical concern for you? Are you always trying to capture your most beautiful moment of life on social media for other people to see it? For married couples, do you need something from your spouse? Do you need to be respected? Do you need to be honored? Do you need to be affirmed? If that's the case, your spouse can, can take over and control you. Your spouse can quietly take the place of God in your life. One more. I haven't heard any amens yet, so we'll do one more. <laughs> what about lying? Do you ever lie? Even a little white lie. Because white lies are, are covering things up to make sure that we look better. That we look better. There's all sorts of examples of, of why we do things when we're motivated by the assessment of others, of our actions. But we are to be constantly yielded to the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that it is him that searches our hearts and minds and evaluates why we're doing what we're doing. Man-pleasers, eye service. We can't have any concern for optics, but concern for evaluating our heart. The author of that book, Welch, says, the most radical treatment for the fear of man is the fear of the Lord. Right? That's the beginning of wisdom, the fear of the Lord. God must be bigger to you than people are. This is his quote. He says, this antidote takes years to grasp. In fact, it will take all of our lives we need to need people less and love them more for the glory of God. What an important statement for us as we evaluate our motivations, knowing that it is ultimately Christ that we serve. Going from there, we'll return to our, our key text, having searched our hearts. Paul says, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart with sincerity. Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says, whatever you do, work heartily. Do it with all that you have as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord and not for men, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Isn't that interesting how Paul phrases that? We're used to hearing the Lord or the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says with such poignance, the Lord Christ the appointed one, the Messiah, the, the anointed one who would come and would be Lord. All of the service that we do while on this earth, be it for a boss, for a spouse, for the church, it is all ultimately being done as service to the Lord Christ. This is uh, important because there's a qualitative aspect to this. How is it that we're serving? We're serving heartily, completely unto him. I want to take us briefly to the book of Philemon. You don't have to turn there yet. We'll come back and read it in a moment, but I want to give you a quick survey on Philemon. Some of you know this short letter. It's again one chapter long, kind of tucked in the back after Titus. And, and Philemon was a master. He was a slave owner. He was a part of a church. In fact, he had a church in his home and he had slaves. We know he had slaves because one of his slaves stole from him and fled. He was at some point captured and placed in jail, and he was placed in jail and had close contact with the Apostle Paul. It was during this time that, that Paul talks to this runaway slave, and he explains the truth of the gospel to him. That slave had an encounter with Jesus Christ. He yielded himself to Christ, accepted the grace and forgiveness of Christ, and Paul said, that slave he used to be kind of useless, right? And he gave him a new name. And he writes this letter to Philemon. He says, hey, I'm writing to you about your servant Onesimus. Onesimus means useful. Isn't that incredible? That's what the gospel does. It transforms us to such a degree that he gives us a new name. 
Saul to Paul, useless to Onesimus, right? Useless is also not on the roster for naming any children, okay? Not a good name, not a good name. But Paul says he was useless, and, and, and now he's useful. And, and he's useful to me as a brother in Christ. He's encouraged me. And then he writes this letter to Philemon, and he says, you know, Philemon, I've done a lot for your spiritual growth, and I could probably just ask you to take this slave back, but you know what? I'm going to appeal to you, and I'm going to ask you, would you, would you take him back? And if you would consider obeying this instruction, it would really mean a lot to me. You know what he says? He says, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you, from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart. What Paul says to Philemon, he's like, hey, I'm not asking you, I'm not forcing you, but please, take Onesimus, your runaway slave, back, that you might accept him as your brother. It's interesting that the word he uses there is refresh my heart in Christ. The same word was observed in what we saw in 2 Corinthians 7.13 when Paul is talking about Titus in Corinth and the obedience of the church there. He says, therefore, we are comforted. We rejoiced all the more at the joy of Titus because his, his spirit was refreshed by you all. The application question for us there is, is our obedience refreshing? Is the way in which we submit to our earthly masters, to our bosses, refreshing? Just play with the word refreshment for a minute, right? You've got the spearmint gum commercials, right? You've got the idea of, of a, an oasis in the desert. This is something that is the exception. And that's how it is for us, brothers and sisters. If we have a, an employer, an earthly master in some way, and we submit with obedience as unto the Lord, what's it going to bring about for them? Refreshment. Refreshment. That, might that be what characterizes our work ethos? Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. We're serving Christ. As we move into understanding this a bit better, verse 7 of Ephesians 6 says, Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Paul's making it clear that this principle of if you do it unto the Lord, you receive a reward back. And that applies to either a slave or a master. Now, what does this reward really look like? Well, the reward is both temporal and eternal. There's a reward for obedience to our earthly masters in this life, and there's also a reward ultimately that comes by identifying Christ as our Lord and Master. But to understand the, the way in which our earthly relationships benefit, there's no better example to look of uh, in the Old Testament for, of slavery than that of Joseph. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 39. We'll all recall the story, of course. Joseph his brothers are jealous of him. They take him and they sell him into to slavery. Joseph is taken and he's, he's purchased down in Egypt and enslaved. I'm going to begin at the first verse of Genesis chapter 39. It says, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of the Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him down from, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did for him to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him the overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. What a remarkable, concise explanation of what serving man as unto the Lord looked like. Joseph could have had every opportunity to be bitter. Man, my brothers sold me. 
I haven't seen my dad in years. I'm stuck down here in Egypt. But you know what he does? He says, whatever you need, Potiphar. Whatever you need, I will be faithful with your stuff just like it's my stuff. I will be an administrator. The word economy has to do with overseeing of a house. And that's precisely what Joseph did. But you see, part of the reward that we get for rendering faithful service to our earthly masters is seen in verse three there. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all he did to succeed with his hands. You see the testimony? This pagan, this polytheist, this Egyptian guy, the Lord's with you, Joseph. The Lord is with you. I'd like to know more about that. We see the same thing throughout Paul's example of how relationships should be lived. Unbelieving wives, live to your, live submitting to your husband as you would to the Lord because that is a testimony to them. Children, obey your parents. That is a testimony to those who observe your lives and your action. Workers, that's all of us. That's all of us. Work so that others can see the hand of the Lord in your life. And interestingly, the, the precept that continues to unfold there is, it says, Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he was made to be overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. It's incredible. We can make our, our workplaces effective and, and positive and share the light of the gospel because of the reason we do what we do. We do it because Christ is identified as our Lord. Now, of course, as we, we move into this, we also understand that there's not always that wonderful reward that Joseph had. There is no guarantee that you're going to get promoted. There is no guarantee that your boss is going to say, wow, I sure see how this sailor obeys the Lord. I want more of what he's got. There's no guarantee. In fact, you might be insulted for being a follower of Christ. But the call is the same. Live it out with obedience. And, and the reason is because we do have a reward that we are guaranteed of. And that we see in Romans 6. 22 and 23 that Sean read for us this morning. Just after that section, it says, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That reward is guaranteed. To understand that that's what we're talking about, that the reward that we get from faithful service to an earthly master, the Colossians parallel passage calls it out really well. Colossians 3, 24 and 25, Paul says, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as a reward. You are serving the, the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. You see that? He says, you'll receive your inheritance. How many Sundays have we got to rejoice together in what our inheritance is? Do we know what our inheritance is? Through Christ Jesus, we've been given the inheritance. The Holy Spirit has sealed us so we know what's coming to us. Outside of Christ, Romans tells us what's coming to us. The wages of sin is death. But in Christ, what is due to us is the free gift of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Moving into the, the portion of that verse there where you see Paul adds a little statement there, knowing that whatever good anyone receives, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is bondservant or free. Brings up a really interesting question. So the eligibility for this inheritance, the call to submission and serving with the right attitude applies to everyone in the church, whether you are owned by someone or you owned someone. That brings up a, a difficult question for us. Is Paul effectively condoning slavery in this case? What do we do with that? Many have criticized scripture in saying the Bible advocates slavery. To be clear, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 20 to 24, help us understand a bit of Paul's take on this. Read carefully, 1 Corinthians 7, 20 to 24. 
Each of you should remain in the condition in which you were called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who called you in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. What an interesting statement. In the social position that you were called in, remain there. If you can get an opportunity to buy your freedom back, to work off your years and become free, then by all means do it. But his primary concern there isn't telling the slaves that they could be free. He was telling both slaves and masters that in Christ, they're under the ownership of Jesus Christ. Equal opportunity to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's Paul's point there. His point isn't whether or not you're a slave. He's not telling the slaves, hey, take to the streets. Take to the streets of Ephesus. Break off the chains. Revolution. And he's not saying to the owners, set them free. As we've established, all of this slavery, all of these human relationships are marred by the fall. They're imperfect. But yet, in the midst of those imperfect relationships, God has a perfect plan. Play out for just a moment how God in his sovereignty uses even the brokenness of human relationships for his purpose. The Roman Empire was one of the the most vast slave-trading empires ever known to humanity. They used slaves and labor of such to build roads, to build aqueducts, to allow travel from one end of the known world to the other. Like Paul writes, sure would like to make it to Spain someday, right? That would have been unthinkable without the, the manpower that was the slavery in the Roman Empire. God uniquely used that time and place for a dissemination of the gospel that's unprecedented. Without that marred, broken, sinful institution, the gospel would not have spread as it did. Furthermore, what Paul teaches us in this principle is really important for us to understand with regards to the sanctity of the preaching of God's word. You see, what Paul does throughout his ministry is he says, I resolve to preach nothing to you but that of Christ and him crucified. If Paul would have made a big deal out of absolving slavery, he would have failed to preach the whole counsel of God. He would have taken his eye off of the lordship of Jesus Christ and focused on an issue of his day. Brothers and sisters, we got to be careful of this. Our call is to preach the word of God, to preach the gospel again and again until the clarity of who Jesus is is made known. I can tell you from personal experience, I have a a dear friend that I grew up with. He raised money to go and and be a, a missionary, and he felt that his call was to address human trafficking in India, and that he was going to make his ministry all about stopping human trafficking. You know what? Tragic ending. He got into it and he saw that all of his power, all of his ability, he could change nothing. He ended up apostate, walked away from the faith. Oh, that he had preached Christ first to himself and then every person he would ever come into contact with. That's what we're called to do. We're called to preach Christ, not change these issues. You see, God uses the power of his word and the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us to change our hearts individually. Remarkably, the Roman Empire, which began so cruelly conquering people and taking them as slaves, gradually, under the power of the gospel, transforming the lives of people, reformed their laws. Slaves were given a a dignity that they'd never had before. If you look at the history of slavery in the Roman Empire, it fizzled out. There was no great emancipation. It went away as the gospel transformed hearts and minds. And so for, for us, church, that's a reminder of what we need to understand Each of you should remain in the condition that that Christ has called us to from a social position and understand that we can only be transformed by the power of the gospel. Now that said, 
verse 9 tells us that there was a clear message for how slavery ought to be lived out, for what the, the conduct should be here. Paul turns from, from talking to the bondservants. Bondservants, obey your masters. Obey your earthly masters. And then he, he switches the script a bit and he says, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Listen to one sermon this week that talked about this as being a, a, better, a bit of an ethos for industrial relations or human resources, a guide for how an employer ought to treat their employees, how a business owner might want to treat those that, that work for them. And the preacher pointed out there's, there's really three key messages to what's being said in this verse. One is, treat them as equals. Treat your slaves just like you'd want to treat yourself, right? That's, that's throughout scripture. Treat them in the same way. He also points out that Paul is saying, don't threaten them. Do not be using a force. When we picture slavery, we picture the whip and the chains and the shackles and all these things that are, that are so oppressive. But Paul says, don't threaten them like that. Treat them with the, the gentleness with which you have come to experience through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see that too, and we need to be reminded yet again. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. In that, in that pattern of submission, parents over children, be gentle with them. Husbands, love your wives. We saw that, that a harshness brings about a hindrance of prayer life. The call for submission doesn't mean that one is over the other. The call is a mutual submission. We saw that back in Ephesians 5.21. It says, submitting to one another out of reverence for who? Reverence for Christ. And that means when we're living out these relationships, if, if God has placed you in a position where you're an authority over someone else, do it with gospel gentleness. Do it with gospel kindness. Husbands to your wives, fathers to your children, mothers too. Ask yourself this question. Is the way that you treat others characterized by gentleness? If it's not, take it to the Lord this morning. The call there is clear. The call there is clear. Stop your threatening. Do not be harsh. Do not exasperate your children. That message is the same throughout. How has Christ dealt with us? Graciously. As we move into the, the back part of this verse 9, what Paul says here is, is really the key to what we need to understand this morning. He says, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he is both their master and yours, is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. See, this is the absolute statement of the lordship of Jesus Christ. Some of you may have read the, the doctrinal statement that Anne kindly sent out this week about lordship salvation. The ministry of, of John MacArthur has for years dealt with a misunderstanding that is throughout the contemporary church about what it means to come to faith in Jesus Christ. During the, the Jesus movement of the 70s, when MacArthur was really ramping up a lot of his ministry, there were a lot of people who said, yeah, Jesus is just all right. Jesus is good, right? Jesus is a great teacher. And all of this intellectual ascent. And then it would become a phrase where you would ask someone, when did, when did you come to Jesus? When were you born again? Oh, I, I was born again on such and such a date, but he didn't become my Lord until later. John MacArthur says, no. And Paul says, no. And scripture says, no. And I'll tell you the same thing. He is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. If what we have and we absorb in terms of doctrine doesn't ascend to transform the way that we conduct ourselves, then check your salvation. Lordship means that we understand that he is both our savior and that we submit to him in all that we do. What does this look like? Well, first of all, as we move through Ephesians, we understand that he's the Lord of the church. He's over both slave owners and over slaves. 
one incredible quote from Spurgeon that I want to share with you. I share this with you knowing that Reformation Sunday is just a bit about a month away. Spurgeon writes this specifically about the Anglican church more so than the Catholic church, but he's clear to call out what is the headship, the lordship, the ultimate authority of this church, the church of Christ. This is what Spurgeon says. The church of God, in a very special manner, calls Jesus our Lord. And there is not and there cannot be any head of the church except the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an awful blasphemy for any man on earth to call himself Christ's vicar and the head of the church. And it is usurping the crown rights of King Jesus for any king or queen to be called the head of the church. For the true church of Jesus Christ can have no head but Jesus Christ himself. I am thankful that there is no head of the church of which I am a member save Jesus Christ himself. Nor dare I be a member of any church which would consent to any headship but his. For that reason, we, we understand that it is our delight to be slaves of Christ because he is our Lord. He is our head. The final thing I want to tell you about slavery as we move into this concept of Christ being our Lord is that believe it or not, there were good reasons for people to sell themselves into slavery. Okay? That sounds weird right? But there were people who were fugitives of the law. They were wanted people. There were people who had amounted an insurmountable debt, and they had no choice to avoid debtor's prison, but to sell themselves into slavery. And you know there were benefits to selling yourself into slavery? Five things that we should know. The slave would, would take in that the master would take in that slave and he would provide total protection, total provision. There's no needs. You have your food and housing taken care of. You work for a master, but your needs are met. You then have a complete submission to that slave owner. You have a, a singular devotion and all of your protection comes from being the property of that owner. All of the social status that belonged to that slave owner becomes yours. You're no longer a fugitive. You're, oh, I work for so-and-so. Oh, you work for so-and-so, right? And, and there's no longer this, this need, this desperate dependence because it's being cared for by the one to whom a slave would sell himself. The incredible truth that we need to unpack and understand in this is that each one of us, from birth was intended to be a slave. In our fallen nature, we would be a slave to sin. Look with me, if you would, as we understand this concept, to John chapter 8. Jesus is addressing a, a group of people, a group of Jews, who apparently started to get a little bit of that intellectual ascent. They started to hear a little bit of the message of Christ, but it, they hadn't yet come to a place where they understood who Christ was and what he had really done for them. Starting at verse 31, it says, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Right? What an interesting interchange. These are Jewish people that have been following around, hearing Jesus. And Jesus says, you know what? If you listen to my words and abide in me, you are my disciples. And the truth, referring to himself, right? Jesus, I am the way, I am the truth and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. And they said, hey, we're the offspring of Abraham. We've never been slaves to anyone. Kind of wonder what history book they were reading, right? Like, they'd been slaves a lot of times. <laughs> anyway, Jesus says in verse 34, he says, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. If you're here this morning and you're not in Christ, guess what? You do have a master. It's sin. It is sin that, that dwells in you, that tells you what you want to do and gives you motivations for why you want to do what you want to do. 
To, to hear a preacher talk about Jesus becoming your owner and becoming your master is objectionable. But I tell you what's more objectionable is having your own sin, your own flesh as your master. Jesus goes on to say, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That's the promise of coming to the Lord Jesus Christ saying, I have a situation I cannot resolve on my own. I am a slave to my own sin, to my own wicked thoughts, to my own wicked heart. God, set me free. And Jesus says, I'll take you in. And in that, he becomes our exclusive owner. Track with that. No one else can lay claim on you. One of the worst parts of, of slavery was being traded from one master to another. Slavery itself wasn't so bad. It's the slave trading that really got out of hand. People would, would come and they would take away large groups of people at a time and bring them into slavery. But that exclusive ownership that Christ has on us means that we're no longer tossed to and fro being slaves to different sins in our lives. We're under ownership of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what can take us out of his hand? Nothing. Neither height nor depth nor any created thing can take us from the hand of God. We also have, as we come to Christ and we ask him to, to set us free from the sin of slavery, we have a complete submission to him. We have a, a singular devotion to him. What does scripture tell us about having more than one master? You can't serve God and money too. If you've tried to have more than one master, it's agonizing. Let Christ set you free. Let him be your Lord and master. Let it be exclusive. You have no other motivation than to go about the business of our Lord Jesus Christ. That also means that as we come to him and he, he transforms our lives and sets us free from bondage to slavery, we now have total dependence for, on him and total protection and total provision. Think about that. He gives us new clothes. We've seen throughout this letter in Ephesians. Take off the old clothes, put on the new clothes. And in some of the, the most intimate cases of, of, of bond being forged between a master and a slave, the entire family gets adopted. And you take on the name of the one who owns you. You have all of the, the status and the protection and the affluence of him who is your owner. Are you known by one who is owned by King Jesus? Is that the name that, that you recognize that you've been given? Finally, there's a, a personal accountability that comes with being a slave to Jesus Christ. That is, the master is coming back. We see that throughout scripture. We see that with clarity, the servants, the virgins trimming their wicks, the idea that the master is returning. In Christ, that brings us cause for great rejoicing. Our benevolent, loving master and owner is coming back for us. And Jesus does this amazing transformative work in that while we are his slaves, while he is our owner, guess what? John 15, 15 says, no longer do I just call you servants. The servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from the father, I have made known to you. That's the kind of relationship that we can have with Christ as our merciful master, as our merciful Lord. I want to end, as we have on a number of other occasions in the, in the 22nd chapter of Revelation. The promise that, well, because of what happened in the garden, because of the fall, we were all made slaves to sin. It is the will of God that in Christ, we would be his slaves forever. This is not an end to slavery. It is perfection of slavery. It is God as our master forever. Look at verse 3 of Revelation 22. Keep in mind, ESV gives us the word servant, but I'm going to read it for you like, it's, like Dulos is. It's slave. 
Revelation 22, verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his slaves will worship him. Church, if Christ has set you free from your bondage to sin, then he is your merciful, gracious master. Let's go to him in prayer and, and thank him for what he has done on our behalf. Lord Jesus, to call you Lord is a privilege. To say that we are yours and that you are ours is incredible. To understand, Lord God, that you as the creator, as the master, would give your life for us, that we would be adopted as sons and given an inheritance, Lord God, is beyond all that we could ask or imagine. I ask that your Holy Spirit would examine our hearts this week, look at our motivations for why we do what we do, and allow us to be a testimony of whose we are, that we are owned by you, that you are a gracious master and Lord. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.